Would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 30 as we continue our Advent series on God with us. Uh, we've been, uh, last week we were talking about God with us in our trials, and today we're going to look at God with us in our, in our suffering, uh, which I think is a, an appropriate word at the end of, of this year, right? Um, so let's stand in honor of God's Word. This is a familiar psalm to, to some of you, but it might be new uh, to many. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what is revealed in your word, that tells us the truth about your goodness and even acknowledges plainly and honestly um, our struggle. Lord, please help us to see more of Jesus who is with us in our suffering. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Um, so I don't know what your street looks like uh, this Christmas, but uh, our street's pretty, pretty festive. We've got a lot of lights up. And uh, it started really the week before Thanksgiving. Our neighbors uh, to, to our right uh, just kind of threw everybody off by putting their lights up like a week before Thanksgiving. And then everybody's going, oh, great. Now, now you know, we got to keep up. So, you know, I, it was a pretty weekend after Thanksgiving. So I went ahead and put, put ours up. Our, our folks across the street did theirs. And, and then um, our, our, our neighbors immediately across the street, if you live in Fishersville, you need to know they are the blue house. Uh, every light on their house is blue. They're Greek. And so, you know, in my big fat Greek wedding, the, the garage door, the Greek flag, that subtle tribute, you know, to their heritage, this is their subtle tribute, this blue beacon of Greekness uh, every Advent, every Christmas. And it's beautiful and it's fun. They're wonderful. And just all up and down our street are the, the, the lights. Some are the white, some are blue, you know, some are multicolored. You've got the red and green lasers, you know, and you've got the spiraling projected snowflakes, and, and it's a pretty cool street. Um, we're glad to be there, and it's very cheerful. But there's kind of, the, the problem is that for all the houses that are, you know, lit up, it sort of makes the ones that aren't all the more conspicuous. Um, and, and I know one of my neighbors in particular, he just doesn't, celebrate Christmas. He, he's, he's the bah humbug type. 
Uh, others, who knows? I, I'm not going to make any assumptions, but you just, it's all the more noticeable. Like lights, 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 no lights. What's going on there? Lights, 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 no lights. What's going on there? I don't know. Maybe you don't have any lights up. No, no, no shade being cast at all. But it just kind of makes you wonder, like, is that a bah humbug house? Anyway. Um, so this one neighbor of mine, though, kind of wonder what's up. Like, what, what brought him to the place where he is just, it's not like he's just not interested. He just, no, I, as a principle, am not going to acknowledge Christmas. Do you, do you have anybody like that uh, in your life? I don't know if it's a family member or a friend of yours, maybe an old friend uh, or, or work associate, you know, that person who loves to tell you why they're not a Christian or why they don't follow Jesus anymore. They kind of talk about their Christianity in the, in, in the past tense. Uh, of course, they're still spiritual. Everybody's spiritual. But the interesting thing is that for most of these people, uh, they're not really turning their back on Christianity. They're not really rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting something else. Those who speak about their Christian experience in the past tense, in many, many cases, and I'm not going to make any exclusive statements here, but in many, many cases, the thing that they turned their back on wasn't the genuine Jesus. It was an imposter. And it wasn't sincere Christianity. It was... It was a distortion. Uh, even, uh, maybe some of you have heard the phrase the prosperity gospel. Many, many cases, it's that. It's this prosperity spirituality. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I think we're all familiar maybe with some of these pitfalls. And, and I'll, I'll show you here from verses 1 through 3. Turn back to, to Psalm 30 for a minute here. So what this distortion, this, this spiritual distortion uh, teaches is that the blessings of God, uh, these promises, for instance, in verses 1 through 3, uh, are, can be yours immediately in all their fullness. So, for instance, in verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, not let my foes rejoice over me. So the victory can be yours immediately, Right? Verse 2, O Lord my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. The healing can be yours immediately. Verse 3, O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol, and you have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Whatever it is that has got you in a pit, you know, depression, loneliness, singleness, you know, <laughs> your marriage. I mean, you know, anything that's making your life feel like a pit, you can be you know, rid of that instantly with enough faith, uh, with enough sincerity, with enough passion, you know, um, God, God's promised uh, to, to bless his people and sort of this whole prosperity narrative that God wants you to prosper. God wants you to be blessed. God wants your fullness. And so why would a good God withhold any of that from you? And leveraging these beautiful promises against uh, vulnerable people, uh, desperate for help, has made a lot of preachers a lot of money. It's gotten a lot of following because there's a lot of, lot of like last hope. Um, what they end up doing is treating God like Santa Claus. It's sort of this prosperity advent. And every, uh, every service, every, every sermon holds out Jesus as Santa. Um, and he's, he's here to grant you every wish, you know, just you know, tell him what you want and, um, and he'll give it to you. 
Uh, this is the, the problem with the prosperity of religion. It just is always saying you can have what you want. You, you, God is always going to put you on top and give you the victory. He's going to heal everything. <clears throat> Psalm 130 kind of speaks to that in verse 6 where David's talking about some of his, um, his presumption when he says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Um, he's, he's imagining himself uh, as he's doing very well for himself, and he's built this kingdom, and he's got all this uh, status, and he's thinking, this is great. And, you know, but then, in hindsight, he realizes, no, it was God's favor. You made my mountain stand strong. And it's actually the point at which God turns his face away that is the point of realization for him, when he realized that everything kind of fell apart like a house of cards, that it wasn't his making at all. It was God's blessing. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so this whole prosperity thing is actually uh, very detrimental. Um, many of the, the cynics, uh, the skeptics, the, the agnostics, the atheists that are you know, sort of in our circles, many of them didn't used to be that. A lot of them used to you know, be in the congregation. They used to sing the songs. They used to celebrate Christmas, what happened? Why don't they believe in Jesus anymore? Why don't they follow him anymore? Was it because they have some, you know, professor in college that just absolutely dismantled her faith, totally had every intellectual argument figured out that would expose Christianity for the sham that it is? Is that what happened? Or was it because, you know, he just you know, became wary of, uh, of, of religion and decided that, you know, Darwin is the way to go, and that's more compelling, you know, than the gospel. Was it any of that? I'm, I'm going to make an estimate here, and it's just based on kind of, you know, years of, uh, of conversations, and, and not just for myself, but other pastors and other folks who, you know, have been doing this. The more and more we talk to people, it's like 9 out of 10, maybe 99 out of 100 times that somebody turns their back on Jesus, walks away, just says no, it really doesn't have anything to do with some intellectual argument that debunks what people have been believing for thousands of years. It doesn't have anything to do with Darwin. You know what it has to do with? you know why people turn their back on Jesus? Because of pain. because of suffering. It's kind of a weird way of, a, of the prosperity gospel falling apart. The assumption is, I've been faithful. I, I, God prom, makes these promises, and, and yet I'm, I'm suffering so much, or there's this sickness, or there's this conflict, or there's this estrangement, and and I've had enough, and I'm done. And, and, you know, Christianity becomes something in the rearview mirror. It's another form of the prosperity gospel. Yeah, it may not have all the flashy, you know, hair and the television stuff and all of the crazy, you know, miracles and all that, but it's, it's still an empty presumption that God exists to bless me. And when he doesn't come through, I'm done. So most of the time when, when people get, get hurt, you know, this is what's going on in their lives. And, and we may think that, 
you know, we're a little too sophisticated to fall for that kind of shallow spirituality, the prosperity gospel, but what amount of suffering would it take for you to turn away? What amount of, of suffering would it take for us to say no? How vulnerable, really, are we to this prosperity spirituality? Well, there's that Advent, you know, um, the prosperity Advent, and then there's Advent for the rest of us that are more realistic, that look um, at the rest of Psalm 130 and go, oh, okay, verse 8 validates our struggle. Uh, it, it, it affirms the fact that to you, O oh Lord, I cry, right? That's, that's frequently our experience of being in a place where we plead uh, for mercy. Who does that? Somebody who's suffering. Uh, verse 9, what, you know, asking the Lord, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Lord, you got to intervene here. Please help. Um, in verse 10, we hear, oh Lord, be merciful to me. Oh Lord, be my helper. Nobody needs a helper who is prospering. The one who needs God to help is the one who is suffering. And of course, this familiar uh, verse 5 that says, weeping may tarry or last for the night. Like that is our experience. But joy comes with the morning. And we're going to talk about the morning. But I just want to affirm that this is the advent for the rest of us. This is the advent for those who are waiting for the morning. We're waiting for more joy. We're waiting for more power. We're waiting for more presence. And, and, and we know and we sing and we profess that God's coming again. Jesus is going to return. He's going to make all things new. And in the meantime, we're living in the in-between. In the meantime, we're very familiar with brokenness, pain, suffering. Let's not kid ourselves. The morning is still a ways off. It may seem kind of pinkish on that dark horizon, maybe even getting orange, but we're not there yet. And so suffering is still the case. Uh, God's with us, though. Uh, we were talking last week about trials. Uh, trials are things that, yeah, we've got to endure. And we wonder, you know, when we're in a trial, how's this going to turn out? Is this going to, am I going to be okay when we're going through something difficult? When the answer turns out to be yes, you know, we give thanks to God and we praise Him and we feel relief. But suffering's different from a trial. Yeah, we suffer in our trials, but they're distinguishable. Because suffering ultimately is what happens when the trials get the best of us. Is this trial going to work out? Is everything going to be okay? No. No, it's not. There's going to be loss. There won't be healing. There won't be reconciliation. That's what suffering is. What do we do with that loss? What do we say to God in our suffering? Now, obviously, we've talked about plenty of people who, who say no to God in their suffering. I don't need this. I don't want that God. I don't want that religion. I, I pray that none of 
none of us, none of you in this room, none of you listening are, are ever going to get to that point where you say no to God. But I would be, um, I would be irresponsible as your pastor to just assume that that's not going to be the case. And I want to plead with you, whether you are even now this close to saying no, or down the road, when you get that close. At the end of the day, what, what good is no? What will you gain to walk away? Is it just spite? God, you owe me better, and so I'm just going to walk away. At the end of the day, you're still suffering. And now you're suffering without the God who promises to be with us. Like the, ultimately, the real question is not, what are we going to say to God in our suffering? But what does God say to us when we're suffering? Come to me. Come to me. You who are weary. Come to me, you who are heavy laden. Come, you who are bitter. Come, you who are broken. Come, you who are guilty. Come, you who are ashamed. Come, you who have lost everything. Come. And the ultimate promise, this side of heaven, you know, when we're south of what's promised, is that he is with us in that suffering. That's the great promise right now. Well, what difference does that make, that he's with us? Well, it makes all the difference. The, the prosperity spirituality ends up breaking people's hearts, not healing them. It creates this sort of false expectation that coming to Jesus means no more weeping through the night, that you can rejoice instantly that he's going to fix everything overnight. But when the tears keep falling, when our lives keep breaking, then the people begin to think that God doesn't care. And, he walks, and they walk away from him. But God does care. And he says to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. He cares enough that God is with us in our suffering. God is even using our suffering to bless us? As crazy as that sounds, don't, don't tune me out just yet. Uh, suffering shouldn't separate us. It's actually the, the thing, the momentum and the energy that pushes us and drives us toward God. And you know this. We all know this instinctively because nobody is going to change uh, their status quo. Nobody's going to change their condition Unless that condition, unless that status quo becomes unacceptable for whatever reason. It becomes intolerable, dissatisfying. The status quo no longer is where you want to remain. And so that's what prompts the change, right? Like what's the famous saying? Change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. And so that means nobody comes to God except through pain, except through suffering. 
Like when the pain of, of living the old life according to this world without God, without hope, when the pain of that becomes so great that you can't stand it anymore, then you go, maybe there's another country. Maybe there's another kingdom. Maybe there's something else. And I mean, that's what happened to me when I was 18 years old. Like the eternal questions God put in my heart. Like, and I was just going, this is, I need something else. I need something better. Started talking to some people. They're like, well, here's what Jesus says. Here's what the Bible says. And I started looking and listening and learning and like, yeah, that's compelling. And that's where I changed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. He brought me from one status to another through suffering. I mean, this is what, why, um, I mean, it makes sense. Any immigrant leaves. Their, their homeland and travels and, and moves to a new land. Like, why are there immigrants? Immigrants exist because they leave their homeland through uh, the pain of poverty or the pain of persecution or the pain of oppression or, you know, anything. You, it, the status quo becomes unbearable. So much so that the, the pain of transition and the pain of uprooting and the pain of being a stranger in a foreign land becomes appealing compared to the pain of staying the same. So um, many of you have been to New York. Many of you have seen the Statue of Liberty. Uh, you, you know just how impressive and beautiful that monument in the Hudson Bay is. That so many immigrants pass by on their way through Ellis Island and then, you know, into our country. And maybe you've done the genealogy work or somebody's done it and, you know, they've leafed through all of those, those ledgers on Ellis Island. Um, you know, we're familiar with the statue. Uh, 151 feet tall from the top of that torch to her 25 feet long feet. <laughs> but what we don't know, what maybe we haven't realized is that as tall as she is, she, it's, a, it's an optical illusion because the statue is only 151 feet tall. The monument and the base is equally as tall. There's 151 feet of stone underneath uh, those, those feet, creating this illusion that she actually stands 300 feet above the bay. It's beautiful. It's impressive. And it's, it's, it's architectural genius. But that podium, that platform, isn't just there to create an impressive optical illusion. It's there to tell us why the statue's there in the first place. Because there's a plaque on that podium. It's a poem by a woman named Emma Lazarus that she wrote in 1883 called The New Colossus. And she compares the Statue of Liberty, the new Colossus to the old Colossus, the Colossus of Rhodes who used to straddle this ancient harbor, you know, this impressive um, you know, statue and monument to the power of that nation. But Emma Lazarus says that this new Colossus is different. She writes, like, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here, at our 
Sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning. And her name, Mother of Exiles. We call her the Statue of Liberty. She's the Mother of Exiles. And from her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome and Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your your storied pomp, she cries with silent lips. And here's the familiar words. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. People have been coming through that harbor to escape tyranny and poverty and, and pain. It was actually suffering that prompted that change. Suffering led them to become immigrants, and that is how people get into God's country too. Suffering and pain leads us to turn from what used to bring us comfort, used to feel familiar, used to feel like home, until we wanted what God offered us. This means that everybody in the kingdom of God is an immigrant. All of us who belong to Jesus are immigrants. All of us who belong to Jesus are adopted. All of us have come from a former existence and now we have a new life. This is why um, in our prayers that we've been doing through December, we've been talking about Colossians 1, that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. We're all spiritual immigrants. Statue of Liberty isn't the only mother of exiles. Um, There's another mother of exiles that I want to mention uh, in closing here. Uh, She's not green. Uh, She's definitely not 151 feet tall. She doesn't have feet that are 25 feet long. Uh, She was a teenage Jewish girl married to Joseph. And they got word that Herod was going to make a bloodbath out of every little boy ages one to three. And an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. And he says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And that's how Mary and Joseph became exiles. That's how Mary became the mother of an exile, Jesus, who was in Africa. The Holy Family lived in Africa until they were able to return home back to Nazareth, back to Bethlehem safely. Except, actually, no, that wasn't even Jesus' home that he returned to. Because nowhere on earth could Jesus go that was properly his home? He was in exile everywhere he went. And, and in the, the only instance of somebody who would leave beauty and joy and gladness and 
prosperity, Jesus switched and inverted the whole exile equation. And he came as an exile to earth to experience suffering, to suffer with us, to be with us in our suffering. Isaiah 53 describes it this way. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It was his suffering that blessed us. It was his work on the cross that takes our sins away. So he's the one that opened the way for us to become welcomed in this new kingdom, to make us citizens in the kingdom of light. So if we take Emma Lazarus's poem and apply it to, to Jesus, the, the true Colossus, it might go something like this. Keep uh, ancient lands, your, your storied pomp, your, your inflated egos, and your self-righteous spirituality. That's that's not what plays in the kingdom of God. Keep those things, cries he with, with crucified lips. Give me your tired, your poor in spirit, your huddled masses yearning to breathe freedom and redemption, the wretched refuse of your sin-sick shore. Send these, the homeless tempest-tossed to me. I lift my cross beside the golden door, beside the, the pearly gate. This is the, the offer that's extended to all of us, uh, to Annie, to, to the world, to come to him, to believe in him, to know that he is the substitute that we need for our sins. He's the one who suffered in our place to redeem us, to justify us, to, to, to make us God's children so that we can be adopted, so that we can become citizens in the kingdom of God, all by faith. All simply, simply by coming to Jesus and saying, I, I need what you're promising. I need this gift. Please receive me. And he says, yeah, you're mine. And then we walk with him. And we walk with him still through the, the darkness with, you know, toward the morning, toward the joy that, that's being promised. But, but we're in this in-between. We get in on some of those blessings now as, as we experience new creation and new life, but but, but they're still off in, in the distance. So we get this new normal, this new status quo uh, that, that, we're, um, that we receive by faith. And, and so what that tells us is that the prosperity, spirituality, isn't all wrong. Listen very carefully. The prosperity, spirituality is 100% correct when it comes to the promises of God. I'm not talking about, you know, the new Lexus and the Learjet. No, the promises of God. Blessing, healing, love, joy, victory. Those are all biblical promises. You know where the prosperity spirituality messes up? Bad. It's not with the promises, it's the timetable. It insists that you can have it immediately, but we're in this in-between time. The, 
the now and the not yet. Like, like it would be a mistake, right, for us to think, oh, the COVID vaccine, it's going to come online and then all of our COVID troubles are going to be gone like that. No. It's going to take some time. It's going to be kind of this in-between. That's where we're at right now, the in-between. But there's a day coming, and Psalm 130 ends with this promise that, that God is turning for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This picture of forever, of thanksgiving, of, of dancing, of joy, right? Like, can you imagine all that dancing? Uh, some of you, it's been a while since you've danced, decades maybe. Can you imagine the new creation, the new heaven and the earth as an eternal dance party? Some of you are like, yeah, I love that. That sounds awesome. Others of you are like, I don't know. But you, you do. You do know. Because I watch you when you sing, and even you're kind of going like this. It's dancing, it's sort of. You know, but you're gonna, we're going to get our groove on for eternity. Because the joy is going to be that unspeakable. And what is this language of, he's loosed my sackcloth and you will clothe me with gladness. You know that sackcloth is for mourning. Sackcloth is for deep pain, torment of soul, guilt, grief, all that. Sackcloth is for repentance. There's a day coming where there will be no more mourning. No more repenting because there will be no more sin, no more struggle, no more suffering. And he will clothe you in gladness. What will it feel like to wear gladness as a garment? To put on a garment of gladness. That's what's coming. That's what we're waiting for. Advent for the rest of us isn't free from suffering, but it promises that. And in the meantime, it gives us Jesus who came and he suffered with us. He proved that he has the victory over suffering through his resurrection. That's what gives us certainty that that day is coming. Uh, Mike Kelly was doing the Advent Discipleship class a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was sharing this quote that hope is commonly like, used in our culture to mean a wish. Like its strength is the strength of a person's desire. Sounds a lot like that whole um, prosperity, spirituality. If you believe enough, if you desire enough, it will be yours. That's that false hope. But in the Bible, hope is the confident expectation of what God has promised and its strength is his faithfulness. The one who promises that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Let me pray. Lord, we are familiar with suffering, but so are you. And that is our, our hope, that we pray to a God who is not aloof, he's not distant, but we pray to one who came and suffered with us, who was in exile with us, so that we might become citizens, so that we might become sons and daughters, that we might know your love in the midst of the darkness, that we might 
truly know the hope of joy in the morning. Lord, in the meantime, please uh, help us experience more and more of your kingdom as we wait for its fullness, as we hold on to hope, and as we bid others to hold on with us, to wait for the Lord, to be strong and take heart and to wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.